boy, I remember the world-renowned evangelist Billy Graham making a statement in one of his sermons. He said, if God doesn't apologize to, if God doesn't judge America, He will need to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And it stuck with me. And I realize it's silly and maybe even blasphemous to think that God really needs to apologize to anyone. But the point that Graham was making is significant. The sins for which he judged Sodom and Gomorrah are prevalent among us here in America today. In Genesis 18 verse 20, Scripture says that the Lord looked upon Sodom and Gomorrah and He saw that their sins were very grave. And in fact, those sins cried out to Him from earth to heaven. Well, what were the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah? You can read Genesis 18 and 19 for yourselves and see many of the sins listed there that they were guilty of. There are other places in Scripture as well that spell out their sins. The story in Genesis 18 and 19 is when God sent messengers to Sodom and Gomorrah because their sins had cried out to Him from earth. And those messengers were angels that took the form of men. And when the men in the city of Sodom saw what they thought were other men, they lusted after them with homosexual desire and determined to have them, even if they had to have them by force. You read the story, when Lot took them into his own house, the men of the city surrounded the house, and they tried to break down the door because they were determined to have sex with these men. Ezekiel chapter 16 tells us that the people of Sodom were also filled with pride, with gluttony, with selfishness, as well as being given over to this abominable behavior. In Jude, the little letter toward the back of the New Testament, verse 7 describes the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah this way. says they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Literally, unnatural flesh. Sodom and Gomorrah are referred to proverbially throughout the Scripture as societies that just fell over the cliff of wickedness and immorality. And because of their sins, God judged them by raining down from heaven fire and sulfur and completely destroyed those cities on the plain. He judged them. So why hasn't God rained down fire and brimstone on America? Well, that's typically the way we think of God's judgment. We think of it in these cataclysmic ways, in these dramatic displays of His power. But as we've already seen in earlier studies of Romans chapter 1, God doesn't just display His wrath and judgment through those dramatic manifestations of power from heaven, but He also does it in ways that maybe we're not so quick to recognize. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What that means is God is revealing His wrath against sin right now. There is a present reality of God's wrath being revealed from on high. Certainly there is a day in the future when the Lord Jesus will return and it will be a day of judgment, a day of wonder, and a day for all of those outside of Jesus Christ of horrific wrath and judgment. But, before that day, God also executes judgment in the world. In our passage of Scripture that's before us this morning for study, explains to us one of the ways that God does that. This morning, as we work through Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 32, we're going to see very specifically how God executes judgment in the world against sin. That's our text. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 32. It's found on page 939 
If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, let me encourage you to take a copy of God's Word, open it up so that you can see for yourself what God says about His judgment against sin. In Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 24, this is what we read. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. God exercises judgment against sin by giving people up to their sinful desires. This is the point the Apostle Paul makes early in this letter to the church at Rome. Before we work our way through the verses that I've just read, I want to make three preliminary statements that will help set some boundaries for us and I hope give clarity to the meaning of this text as we work through it. First of all, I want to inform those of you that do not know and remind those of you who do know that in this section of Paul's letter, he is making an argument. Beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way down through verse 20 of chapter 3, Paul is teaching the universality of sin. He has announced the theme of the letter in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. And the theme is the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. The gospel that reveals to us righteousness that God requires. A righteousness that we receive through faith in Christ. And in order to understand the gospel, that good news, we need to understand the bad news. We need to understand the truth about sin. So Paul immediately, in verse 18 of chapter 1, launches into his explanation of the universality of sin. From 18 to 32 in chapter 1, Paul is addressing the sinfulness of people who are tempted to think, but, but I didn't know. But I didn't know. And he's basically informed us in this passage there's nobody that will be able to use that argument with God on the day of judgment because everybody knows God has revealed himself in nature to every person in chapter 2 Paul begins to show the universality of sin against people who say well I'm not as bad as others <laughs> we're religious we went to church and Paul's going to show the superficiality of religion for those who put their hope and confidence in engaging in the rituals and going through the motions and being at the right place at the right time with the right people because they too are under sin. His point is that we are all under sin. So what we're looking at this morning is a portion of the argument that he's making to demonstrate the universality of sin. Secondly, as we have just heard, this passage directly addresses homosexuality. And it does so in terms that clearly teach that homosexuality is unnatural and that it is shameful. And I want to be sensitive to those who struggle with homosexual temptation and those who are given to homosexual 
ways of living. I don't want to do anything that will unnecessarily call anyone out or suggest that somehow they are beyond the pale of God's grace and mercy and hope that is in Jesus Christ. I know you've got family members who are given over to sexually contrary ways of living when compared to God's Word. I know we have people here that we love that are dear to us that are caught up in that and have been convinced to think that this is okay. That this is really not any different than engaging in heterosexual activity. So I want to be sensitive and I want to be clear. I don't want to misrepresent what God says at all. I don't want to pull back anything that the Scripture sets forward. And I want to love those who are struggling with this and those who have family members and friends that are given over to this lifestyle. And I want to do so remembering what the Bible says about love. Love rejoices in the truth. And if I love you, I'm not going to lie to you. If I love you, I'm not going to withhold from you anything that the Bible sets out for your good. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. My desire this morning is for everyone in this room to experience the freedom, the forgiveness, the love that comes in and through Jesus Christ. Thirdly, by way of preface, I want to point out that three times in this text, we read that little phrase, God gave them up. You see it's in verse 24, verse 26, and again in verse 28. And I want to just underscore a point about that phrase. That phrase does not mean God becomes passive. It doesn't mean God just says, okay, I'm just going to stand back and see where this goes. It's not at all. It is an active judgment of God. It is something that He intentionally, purposefully does. It's a judicial act of God. The fact that it is repeated three times emphasizes the seriousness of God's activity in judging people and societies. He gives them up in consequence to their ungodliness and unrighteousness. So with that preface before us, there are two points that I want to set before you in this message today. The first is, why does God give people up? And the second is, how does God give people up? Well, why does God give them up? Quite simply, because they rejected Him. Just as Paul declares three times that God judges people by giving them up, he also states the reason that God does this in three different ways. I want to call them to your attention. If you look at verse 23, you'll see that they exchange the glory of God for images. Our text, verse 24, begins with the word therefore. Therefore. So we're immediately directed back to what Paul has just written. In verses 22 and 23, look at what he says. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. In verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, instead of worshiping God, they worshiped creation. Secondly, they exchanged their beliefs and their objects of worship. This is verse 25. It's really just a different way of saying the same thing that he's already said in verse 23. But look at verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who's blessed forever. Amen. They exchanged the truth for literally the lie. There's a definite article there. They believed the lie of the world. The lie of the devil. They bought into ideas and ideologies that are contrary to the truth that God has revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Instead of believing the truth about Him, truth He's revealed, they believe lies. Denying His existence or denying that He is as He's revealed Himself to be. 
So they exchanged the worship of God for the worship of creation. I said this before in a previous sermon, that all that exists is either God or not God. God or creation. So if you're not worshiping God, the true God, the only God there is, then you're worshiping creation. No matter what form that worship might take, it may not be in the form of an idol that you have manufactured with your own hands. But anything other than the true God is creation. And here, Paul makes plain that the reason God gives people up in judgment for their sin is because they've exchanged the worship of Him as the true God for the worship of the creature. When Paul mentions God the Creator, you'll notice he just can't help but break out in a little mini doxology. Who's blessed forever. In other words, it doesn't matter what the world does. It doesn't matter what other people think about God. Paul is going to recognize Him as God and honor Him and worship Him as God. Because He is God forever. Brothers and sisters, that's the way we should be. No matter what anybody else thinks, no matter what everybody else thinks about the true God, when we conceive the true God as He's revealed in Scripture, our hearts should reflexively bless Him, praise Him, worship Him. In verse 28, we see the third way that Paul explains why God judged people by giving them over to their sins. It's because they didn't acknowledge God. You see verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Paul uses a word here that's probably a word he coined. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. He's saying it's not just that they were ignorant of God, but they thrust Him out of their circle of acquaintance. They refused to have knowledge of God. It is a willful ignorance. They really don't want to know the true God. Well, do you notice a common theme in these three ways that Paul has expressed the reason why God judges societies and people? The common theme is God. It's because of how they regard God, what they do with God. They have a God problem. They reject His glory. They reject the truth of God. They reject the knowledge of God. You know, sometimes when people read these verses in Romans 1, they think, oh, well, homosexuality is the very worst sin in all the world. You see what is being said here, that's not true. It is forsaking God that is at the foundation of God's judgment. Behind everything Paul says about homosexuality is this great problem of just rejecting God. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian writer, novelist, and critic of the former Soviet Union. And he suffered because of the things that he wrote. He was imprisoned in one of the gulags, wrote about his experiences there. And later in life, as he was reflecting on what had happened to the Soviet Union and the godlessness of that empire that ultimately brought it down to disillusion, he said he remembered a number of older people offering an explanation for what was going on when he was just a child. And he said, as longer he lived and thought about that, their explanation was right. And this is what they said, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Everything that's spelled out in Romans 1 regarding God's judgment against people, against societies, can be summarized as to the reason in those very words. They've forgotten God. They've tried to un-God God. They've not submitted to what God has revealed about Himself. They refuse to glorify Him, worship Him, and acknowledge Him. Paul says, it is a great inversion. 
God, the Creator. We, the creatures, have inverted things. And rather than worshiping God, we worship ourselves. We worship the created order. Things are upside down, opposite of the way they're designed to be. When a society exchanges God for other things, when people reject the truth of God for lies, and they set their affections on created things above their Creator, they invoke God's wrath and judgment against them. And God does judge people who reject Him. Paul explains in our text the way that God does that. The way that he does it is by giving them up for their sin. So why does he do it? Because they reject God. How does he do it? By giving them up. Three times you see this phrase used in our text. And each time it is used as an expression of what God does as a consequence for mankind's rejecting him as God. What does he do? He gives people up to their sin. Let's look at the three ways that Paul says this that we might gain a proper appreciation and understanding and a fearful recognition of God's work of judgment. In verse 24, he says God gives them up to impurity. Listen to this verse again. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Paul uses a strong, albeit general, language as he first describes God's giving people up. He says he gives them up to their lusts. That word connotes passionate desire. It's often associated in Scripture with forbidden pleasures. And these lusts, he says, come from their hearts, indicating it's a deep-seated lust. It's not a surface impulse. And he gives them up to uncleanness or impurity that is filth that which is contrary to what is good and right and true and beautiful and the result of this unbridled lust is using their bodies in dishonorable ways probably what Paul has in mind is the wanton sexual immorality that just permeated the the Roman Empire in the first century he writes this letter from Corinth and in Corinth there was a large pagan temple that had over a thousand temple prostitutes associated with its ritualistic worship. And no doubt, being confronted with this day in and day out in Corinth, he was reminded of the inverted worship that is taking place in the world when people reject God. And they set something out of creation above God in their affections. As a consequence, God gives people up to their deep-seated wicked passions. And that giving people up results in the widespread sexual immorality that runs throughout society. Does any of this sound familiar? Secondly, we see God gives them up to dishonorable passions because they invert their worship and exchange the creator for the create creature God gives them up verse 26 and 27 says for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up the natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Homosexual activity is obviously being described in these verses. There have been many attempts, especially over the last 30 years, to try to reinterpret these verses to suggest that Paul is not actually speaking about homosexual activity as we know it today. Some have said this is merely a description against the widespread Greek practice of pederasty. 
or of men having sex with boys. And Paul is saying that that is obviously wicked and improper. But this can't be what Paul means because of verse 27, where he specifically speaks of women having sex with women. So pederasty is not in his sights here exclusively. Others have said that this is merely a description of heterosexuals committing homosexual acts. The argument goes like this, that in verses 27 and 28, when Paul speaks of natural relations being exchanged for those that are not natural, what he means is natural relationships that are natural to a person based upon his sexual orientation. So for a homosexual, a natural relationship would be a sexual relationship with a person of the same sex. For a heterosexual, a natural relationship sexually would be with someone of the opposite sex. So what Paul here is saying is that it is wrong when a heterosexual pursues homosexual relationships. That is what is strange. That is what is defiling. That is what is unnatural. But there are at least two good reasons for not seeing this as Paul's meaning. The first is in verse 26 with a phrase that Paul uses, contrary to nature. We discover that it is regularly used in ancient Greek ethical literature to refer to homosexuality. He's using a phrase that would have just registered immediately with his first readers to be equivalent to homosexual activity. And secondly, why we cannot accept this misreading of the text As John Piper has astutely noted, in a world where God is the creator and designer of life, natural means in sync with God's purpose and design. What is natural is not what comes easy to you or what you might become most comfortable with. What is natural is what accords with the God of nature's prescriptions. And though you might be very comfortable in ways of thinking or living that just seem normal and natural to you, if they are contrary to the God of nature and the God who has revealed Himself to us and His will to us, then no matter how familiar it might feel to you, it's unnatural. Another consideration in this part of the text is that Paul uses a more biological term for both men and women than the New Testament typically uses to describe men and women. Our English Standard Versions render the word men in verse 27 and women in verse 26. But the words are not the standard words for men and women. Rather, they are the more biological words males and females. Indicating that Paul here is thinking about the biological realities that go with God's Design of men and women and how they are designed to come together as opposite sex in his good gift of sexual relationships in marriage. Homosexuality in this passage is obviously sinful. I mean, even as you heard Don read from Leviticus 18 earlier, it's quite clear. God does not mince words about this. Brothers and sisters, we should not be squeamish about this. And we should be very clear on this. In a day when we're being told more and more that this way of thinking, this way of talking is unloving, and some even want to make it illegal, we have to be willing to speak the truth because it's only the truth that will set people free. There's no doubt when Paul uses the language in this passage, he's talking about that which is condemnable under God's law. Listen to it again. Verse 26. Dishonorable passions, he says. Verse 26, exchanging natural relations. Verse 27, same thing for those which are contrary to nature. Verse 27, consumed with passion for one another. Calls them in verse 27, shameless acts. These are not the descriptions of lawful activities. These are not things that are in keeping with God's revealed will. These are things that are contrary to God's commandments. 
when a society begins to normalize and then celebrate sexual immorality and especially homosexuality, it is evidence that God is giving them up. He's judging them. This is not the way people typically think, however. People typically think, look how sexually free we are. Look how we've left the dark ages behind. And now anyone can identify sexually any way he, she, or Z, or otherwise wants to identify. I mean, this is what's being advocated. I'm not trying to be cute. And this is enlightenment, we're told. Yeah, the scripture says, no. It's judgment. I studied psychology and sociology in college. In my first year in college, I remember textbooks having to be renewed. We had to get rid of the standard textbooks in our psychology course because the American Psychological Association, the year before, in 1974, had changed homosexuality and moved it from its list of mental illnesses. And so from 1974 on, homosexuality was no longer regarded as deviant behavior or mentally ill behavior. Why the change? It wasn't made because of any clinical research. It wasn't made because of any scientific discoveries. It was made because beginning in 1970, homosexual activists began to protest the annual meetings of the American Psychological Association. And each year, those protests began to scream and cry out louder and louder. How dare you? How dare you say that the way we live is deviant? And so succumbing to the pressure of the crowds, the APA removed it from its list of mental illnesses. Its classification was changed. Well, it gradually allowed the opportunity for homosexuality to become normalized in our nation, such that in 2015, the Supreme Court of the United States declared that it's lawful for a man to be married to a man or a woman to be married to a woman. That's what our society says. That's what our legal system says. God's Word says it's unnatural. It's dishonorable. It's shameless. Well, not only that, but notice how verse 27 ends. It notes that homosexuality carries with it its own sorrows. Men, it says, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The Center for Disease Control in Atlanta estimates that there are 20 million new sexually transmitted diseases each year. And study after study indicates that an overwhelmingly disproportionately high percentage of those cases are found among men who have sex with men. In addition, there are multiple studies of young people who identify as LBGTQ who are committing suicide and attempting suicide at a rate four times higher than the national average. Nobody violates God's standards. Nobody exchanges God for creation and remains unscathed. This type of inversion has consequences. Eternal consequences and consequences even for the way you live your life here and now. Well, why does Paul use homosexuality as an indication of God's judgment on a nation or society? I believe it's because homosexuality graphically represents the inversion that takes place when people exchange the worship of God for the worship of creation. It's not natural. It's not the way we were designed to worship. And as an expression of that fundamental sin and rebellion against our Creator, God gives societies up 
to this perversion of sexuality. And it becomes a testimony of the very sin that has incurred his wrath and judgment. Unnatural physical sexual behavior depicts the unnatural spiritual behavior of idolatry. When people forsake God and refuse to acknowledge him as God, they tempt God to judge them. And one way that God judges people who continue to reject him is to deliver them up, to give them over, to run headlong away from him into the impurity that they desire and the dishonorable passions that they cultivate. This is a tragic reality. I mean, this is a horrific revelation in God's word about what's really going on in a society that thinks itself to be sexually free. What's really going on is God is giving them up. God's delivering them over to their own wickedness and sin. So what does this mean for those who see themselves as homosexuals or other types of sexual beings than male or female? What does it mean for them? Is there no hope for them? Are they just so far gone? They've been delivered over and we should just say, well, it's so sad, but not really much that can be done? No, not at all. They are not beyond God's grace. A nation, a society is not beyond God's grace even when God gives them over to this way of thinking and living. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9, 10, and 11. These are the most hopeful verses in all the Bible when we are thinking about God's delivering up people, societies to judgment, granting them their desires to pursue their own sexual suicide. Listen to what he says in verses 9 of 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He minces no words. He tells the truth. Sin will take you to hell. But then he says in verse 11, those most life-giving, hope-filled words, and such were some of you. <laughs> He's writing to a church full of people who had been exactly that. They had experienced God's judgment and being given over to those types of lifestyles that are so contrary to God's commandments that you might be tempted to write them off and say no hope for them. And he says, no, such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What hope, what power in the message of Jesus Christ. Look, have you ever felt like you're beyond hope? Have you ever felt like there's, you just sinned too much? Gone too far? Have you ever been tempted to give up on somebody else because you thought that of them? It's not true. It's not true. God's grace is greater than all of our sin. There's hope. There's hope no matter how far you've gone, no matter what you've done, there's hope. You can be included in those of whom Paul wrote, such were some of you. You say, oh, but pastor, man, I've been giving myself over to so much sexual immorality and I don't even know my way out. I don't even know what I like or don't like anymore. Nothing turns me on anymore. I don't know what to do. Listen, there's hope for you. That's why Jesus came. That's why He died. But my sin's too great. He's a great Savior of great sinners. He died on the cross. He shed His blood because sin has come into the human race and sin has separated us from God. And no matter what your sin, no matter how long your sin, be assured of this today, that God has sent His Son into the world to save sinners. Come to Jesus. Believe Jesus. Take Jesus at His Word. Throw yourself at Jesus. Trust Him. Bow to Him. Confess what is true about your life and your sin and confess what is true about Jesus Christ. And believe Him. 
you'll be saved. You'll be able to say the rest of your life, I used to be, I was, but I've been washed. I've been sanctified. I've been justified by Jesus Christ and the work of His Spirit. Oh, friend, that is the desire of this church for you today. You came in this room today, strangers to God, separated from your Creator. And Our prayer, our hope, our longing is that you'll be reconciled to Him. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. There is great grace for great sinners. You're sitting in a room full of great sinners. And we've, most of us have experienced His great grace and we'd love to tell you more about it because that's our God. That's who He is. Sometimes people will read Paul's word in this section of Romans 1 and they'll think all he's concerned about is sexual deviancy. This is his only concern. He must have had some sexual hang-ups himself. Read verses 24 and 25. You could see why they might get that thought. As he says, God gives people up to impurities. Verses 26, 27, he gives people up to dishonorable passions. But we got to keep reading. We got to read 28 through 32 because Paul goes on to teach there the third way God gives people up to judgment is by giving them up to a debased mind. Look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is an all-encompassing description. An unbelieving mind is a debased mind, a depraved mind, an unapproved mind. It's not trustworthy. So no wonder it makes faulty moral judgments. You look at verses 29 through 31, you see specific dimensions of these judgments that come from a debased mind. There are 21 descriptions of the kind of sinful judgments that a debased mind gives rise to. We should not see this list, however, as exhaustive. It is suggestive. Paul rattles it off as a rapid-fire description of the kind of sinful foolishness that results when God gives people over to a debased mind. Generally, he says, they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, lawlessness, all kinds of unrighteousness. Specifically, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips. Do you see this list? I mean, we're all included in this, right? Slanderers, haters of God, don't love Him supremely, insolent, haughty, boastful, Arrogant, prideful, inventors of evil. We're not satisfied with run-of-the-mill evil. We'll design our own. Disobedient to parents. What a list for disobedience to parents to be included in. Foolish, lacking wisdom, faithless, we're not dependable, heartless, cruel, ruthless, Willing to inflict pain, violence on others. It's quite a list. It's a description of what people are like who've been given over by God to a debased mind. Again, I ask. Does it sound familiar? You hear any echoes from our culture and society from this list? It does sound like modern America, doesn't it? Well, that's all bad enough, isn't it? But the text doesn't end at verse 31. Verse 32 describes the ultimate dimension of a debased mind. I want you to read this verse. Look at this verse. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They know that whoever disobeys God and delights in disobeying God deserves death, but they disobey God anyway. And they give approval to those who practice such evil disobedience. The King James says they have pleasure 
in them that do them. The New English Bible says they applaud such practices. They take delight in evil. They willingly are entertained by it. They're appreciative of those who participate in it. Can you imagine such depravity? You don't have to imagine it. You just have to think a little bit more critically than we typically think. Two months ago, in New York, the Senate of the state government there voted to pass what they called the Reproductive Health Act. Governor Andrew Cuomo signed it into law January 22nd. As he did so, New York legislators cheered and applauded the fact that with this new law, all restrictions were removed from legalized abortion. A baby can be taken from his mother's womb in New York two minutes before delivery and executed, and it's legal. That's horrific enough. But if you haven't seen it, I encourage you to get on the internet and watch it. As Cuomo signed that bill into law, New York congressional leaders and senators stood up and cheered and applauded. They know. They're made in God's image. They know that those who practice this type of thing deserve to die. Yet they applaud those who practice them. It's fairly evident, isn't it, that what Paul says about God's judgment of sin and those who reject Him as God fits exactly with where we are living in our society today. It's a pretty easy case to make, actually, when we think about what's happening culturally, what's going on politically. But brothers and sisters, let me try to serve you well as your pastor and bring this more closely to home. What do you give approval to in your own life? What do you celebrate and applaud? What do you pay money for in order to be entertained? Take the list that Paul has given to us in these verses and use it to evaluate the last movie you watched. The TV shows you like. Could it be? Could it be that we have been drifting along with the currents of this world and how we think about God and about ourselves and about the world that He's created? Brothers and sisters, if so, if we find ourselves having been caught up in this kind of ungodly thinking and living. Oh, may God open our eyes to see it and grant us true repentance and deep grief at the realization that we're really not much different than those who profess no knowledge of God. But praise God if He opens our eyes to that. That's Him at work. There's grace for us. There's forgiveness and we can turn from sin and confess it to our God who loves us because He's our Father and He will welcome us and strengthen us to think rightly and to begin to live differently. So does God owe Sodom and Gomorrah an apology? Well, of course not. Of course not. Why? Because God is displaying His wrath. On America. We are a nation rightly understood as having been given up by God to our sinful desires. Brothers and sisters, we live in a day of wanton evil and immorality. And as we are confronted with that day in and day out, and we see people practicing these things, and we see them being given awards for these things and being applauded for these things, let us think biblically. And let us be humbled by this reality 
and pray and ask God to have mercy on us. Have God to come and revive His work among us. Let's speak to those that are not thinking this way because they've never stopped to consider Romans 1. Teach your children how to think about this reality in the light of this passage. Help them to see that these things that the world applauds and sets before them and encourages them to participate in, in reality, God judges. Help them to come to see that God's ways are not only right, they're good. They're best. And encourage your children, encourage your loved ones, anybody under your influence, to turn from sin and to find life and joy in Jesus Christ. To come to know the true God. That they might worship Him and be reconciled to Him. May God help us all to trust the Lord today. To live by faith today. To encourage others to know Him today. And to have our thinking shaped by what He says is right and good and true. Today and every day. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for giving us Your Word. Even when Your Word is difficult in the ways that it sheds light upon our lives and upon things that we have become accustomed to, I thank You that You love us enough to tell us the truth. And I pray that Your Spirit would take Your Word and cause it to live deep within us so that we will see the truth, believe the truth, delight in the truth. Oh God, we desperately need your grace and mercy in Christ. I pray for people today that are caught up in sexual sin and they're so ashamed and they don't know what to say, what to do. Would you show yourself powerful and merciful and revealing Christ in them that they might turn from sin and find forgiveness and healing and new life and encouragement and strength and joy and purity in Him. Our eyes are upon You. You are our help. We have nowhere else to go. So come and honor Your Word among us by the ministry of Your Spirit for the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For we pray in His name. Amen.